Welcome to Help From Future Self. Tavid and Archons, welcome to another episode of Help From Future Self. It's the conversational Keyforge podcast by and for Keyforge friends. I am your pal, Sicky Gruen, and I am joined this week, as always, by my good friend, my Keyforge compadre, my companion in the Keyforge quest of life. It's Boulevard Paper Fight. What's happening, Blake? Yo, what's going on, man? I'm doing quite well compared to you, I can say. <laughs> I'm a little under the weather, so my apologies to the listeners if I'm a little low energy or uh, if if I'm a little foggy on on the episode this week. But uh, we're kind of finishing off our our trio of shows in which we talk sort of broadly about shortcomings in decks. So if you'll recall, we had an episode about what you do if you have sort of a, a dud house in your deck. And we did an episode about what to do if your deck is lacking in a uh, specific area. So kind of to finish things off, perhaps the most ill-defined portion of this entire conversation, and one that's given to the most variability from deck to deck and from set to set, we're going to talk a little bit about ratios of cards in your deck. So this is pretty distinct, I think, from the what is your deck missing conversation that we had a couple of weeks ago. This is going to be talking about what's good to have in large amounts and what's good to have in small amounts and when that applies and when it doesn't apply. Um, as with everything um, in Keyforge, the answer to every single time any question get asked, gets asked is uh, the answer is always it depends. Mm-hmm. It's going to depend on the deck. It's going to depend on the matchup. But there's some good broad rules of thumb uh, that uh, Boulevard Paper Fight has laid out here that I'm really excited for us to, to sort of get into and dig into. You ready for this convo? Yeah, let's do it, man. All right. So to start things off, I'm going to ask you a question that occurred to me, which is way back in the day, one of the rules of thumb when it came to Keyforge was that a low creature count deck was going to be pretty difficult to win with. And when I say low, I mean like 12 creatures that unless your deck was very specifically geared to do the most with those other 26 cards, or sorry, 24 cards, you weren't going to get a whole lot out of a deck that had a creature count that low. Now, that's a piece of advice that went way back to the Coda era. Do you think that is true, and has it continued to be true for a while, or has it been untrue for a long time, in your opinion? I think it was that that type of deck was the strongest in Coda, and it's only gotten weaker as the sets have come out because we've gotten more board-based sets and as a result uh, sometimes you can just lose due to that issue but then again there is the the stat of what is the ratio of other things that exist that could counter that sort of play but i would say that it was the best in in coda having that Mm -hmm. without a doubt so conversely to that do you think there's such thing as too many creatures in a deck I think there is there is there is a there is a point when I think you get past I think when you start hitting 20 as you go up from there there's a law of diminishing returns. So like if you have a 25 or 26 creature deck I think you're going to be in a position that can uh, be in trouble cuz that means um obviously this is depends matters as mm-hmm. well but especially in Coda, I think that's true because we're getting more things. I think Worlds Clyde is the best position to have that high count because you had creatures that had a lot of abilities that gave you actions or or like the, the, the action card type feels when they did things. And that mm-hmm. kind of helped against that sort of idea. Especially in Star Alliance and in the Saurians. Yeah, for sure. Those two houses definitely had the most. 
Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I, I agree with you 100 percent. I've noticed uh, the trend in a lot of the decks that I play. If they aren't specifically a low creature count deck because I'm playing Quixel or something like that, which I do a lot of, then I start to see diminishing returns on anything more than 20 creatures. And a big part of that, Blake, is honestly, I think that it's very difficult to pull a deck that has more than 20 quality creatures on it. Now, what a quality yeah. creature is is an, uh, a topic for another day, but we're talking about cards that have good play abilities or are must answer threats on the board um, that you're definitely going to get value out of. If you call that house again, once they're already on the board, um, I think that more often than not, when you pull a deck that has a very high creature count outside of worlds collide and outside of star Alliance and Sorian within worlds collide, oftentimes that high creature count is just buffered by tons and tons of low value creatures that just the most you're going to get out of them is a reap and maybe a fight. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's true. So why don't we get sort of into ratios here? What's it like when you're playing a, a, a very creature heavy deck or even a creature light deck uh, when you have to think about things like board control? Yeah. So that's, I think the both sides of the spectrum because, and, and it works when we talk about ratios, I'm not just thinking about this in the sense of what your deck has, but when you're analyzing a deck list, understanding the ratios that your opponent has is also important as well, because it's going to give you a little bit of insight of what their deck could potentially do. So if you know they have a low creature count deck and you see a Quixelstone, you already know what the game plan is for that. Same sort of thing, like when you see a DAV, the next thing you got to do is a creature count, but not a general creature count, but a mutant creature count. And then on top of that, how many mutants are in the house that Dav falls in and how many are in the other houses. Because that's going to give you an idea of the ratio of what your opponent's going to want to do, the house is going to want to call to get that most value from playing cards like um, Quixel Stone or Dark Ember Vault. So those are things you got to keep in mind. Now, on your side of things, the reason why it's you got to keep board control in mind is because if you have a ton of board control, specifically in the mass removal sort of category and you have a high creature count deck that's something that is is a ratio that you don't want because that means mm -hmm. when you're going to clear the board you're clearing your stuff a lot too so those cards become more dead now on the other side of that if you have a low creature count and a lot of board removal you know that more likely than not those wipes are going to be affecting your opponent more than they're affecting you and that's where i think that ratio comes into play of having low creature count and uh making sure that makes sense. Yeah, I think one of the major shifts in terms of the way that I think about board clears is that after the first set, suddenly we started seeing a lot of board clears where it was very difficult to do the old coda trick of I'm going to clear the board and then vomit out all of my creatures from a single house onto the board. So, for example, the classic example is, uh, you know, a, a very potent and very old school Coda combo, which was you hit Gateway to Dis, then you hit Arise, bring back all of your Dis creatures and then drop them that same turn. Mm -hmm. And we've seen lots of moves to get away from that because it was an extremely potent combo. But one of the things that we move towards is that in many of the other sets, board clears essentially made turns dead because it's like, well, uh, if I have this Omega board clear card, then what am I supposed to do with all these creatures that I have in my hand before I play it? You know, mm -hmm. I'm going to play them out and then they're just going to leave play instantly or I'm going to hold them in my hand and not cycle my deck. So suddenly it was became much more arduous to clear the board, which is, you know, something that had to happen in so many games in WC because there was so much capture and so much exalting going on in ways that could be really uh, like 
decks could abuse in in pretty incredible ways. So it's one of the things that I think about a lot these days is is especially now that Gateway to Dis is a card that's back in play. It's at common. It's something that we see all the time. Is is there a way that I can get value out of my creatures, even if I have to do a board clear? And sometimes it's going to be. No, I'm just going to have to suck it up on this one. My creatures are all going to leave the board. But sometimes it's also going to be the I'm going to play this board clear and still get the opportunity to put a couple of creatures down and reestablish my board, which is something I prefer to be totally honest with you, Blake. Mm, I like that. I actually think it's it's interesting that you mentioned that combo of the gateway arise because clearly it was something they saw that was that was a little more potent than they probably expected, but something that they wanted to exist in some capacity because we've seen the evolution of that combo really come to fruition in this set where gateway came back and then we saw i believe it's stirring grave Mm -hmm. where you put it into your archives you don't get to use it right away but you still get the recursion but a little bit more fair play in a way so i i do think that uh, it's interesting you brought that up and, and the way that works yeah, and especially too, it's one of those things where that 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 fair play is interesting to me because it gives your opponent the chance to think, okay, I just saw my opponent put, you know, clear the board, put all of his creatures from or his or her creatures from a certain house into their archive. I'm just going to hold back my board clear until they reestablish their board and then I'm going to do the same back to them. Like yeah. It really increases the strategic thing, whereas, you know, oftentimes that w- one single turn of just, all right, I killed killed the board, then completely reestablished a giant board of all the creatures of a certain house was, it felt very difficult to counter, even if you had board clears in your deck. Yeah, and it's a grim reminder is what I was thinking of for those of you who are screaming at your uh, <laughs> listening device for me getting the name wrong. Um, I, w- I once heard that described as being like a ghost when you're listening to a podcast and somebody says the wrong thing or can't think of a thing and you're just yelling at it. Yeah. It's like, it's like being a ghost. Um, why don't we talk a little bit about pips versus actions? Okay. Well, that is, I think kind of the most interesting one for me because it is, I think the, the exact converse to creatures is, is when you have pips and actions, because sometimes you know that uh, it gives you the information with those two things. So when you have creature count and then you have pip or action cards, you kind of know like if you have way more creatures than you do action cards, mm-hmm. you're most likely going to be getting your ember generation coming from your board. And if you have a lot of action cards, then you then you have the potential to have a lot of pips. Now, when you say pips versus actions, the reason why I've brought this up is because if you have that moment when you have a lot of action cards, and they don't have pips on them, it kind of is a feels bad potentially because then you could have a really off ratio for Ember Generation because then you might have less creatures. You might also have upgrades or actions. Well, when I say actions, it doesn't necessarily mean actions. It could be, it's like any card that has a pip on it, let's just say. Mm -hmm. But they generally fall in the action category because you get the recursion of those a lot more. And so that's going to let you know how your your deck can possibly get Ember and what you need to rely on. Because when you have a house that just has like actions with pips and most of the cards, you know, wow, I can just call this house and basically play cards and I'm going to start getting towards keys. And I think that's what I'm, I'm talking about in that statement because the, the other side of that is the cards like Phosphorus Stars, which I think has its place but generally that's not a card you want to see as an action because you know you're going to take a chain for stunning and it's just like you're going to end up discarding it or something like it doesn't have the advancement of the game in terms of getting towards a key quality to it yeah i mean this is a thing where if you look back to once again the coda era 
and you start looking at action cards that have pips versus action cards that don't have pips, the cards that don't have pips were generally either cards that would generate amber in some way. So I'm thinking of a card like, say, Blood Money. It doesn't have a pip, but it's going to enable you to possibly get two amber out of it. Or something like Dimension Door, even. Although that's a terrible card, it was still designed with the intent of you're going to get some amber, theoretically, from playing this. Or otherwise, it was just a super powerful card. I'm thinking of things like Library Access, um, you know, uh, uh, even Key Abduction had a pip, for God's sakes. But uh, uh, Key Charge, though, yeah, that, like that key one. Key Charge, exactly. You know, th- th- those are all cards. Or Bait and Switch, the-, the classic example, right? A card that they originally designed with a pip and then took it off when it went into production. But uh, I-, I think that's become less so over time. I think that if you're looking uh, right into, you know, uh, Mass Mutation and looking at the action cards that don't have pips, you're seeing far fewer um action cards that are incredibly powerful that don't have pips. Although mass mutation is interesting because the actual mechanic of enhancement means that you sometimes end up with a lot of pips on cards where it's ridiculous. Like ritual of Tognath Mm -hmm. already has three Amber on it and you're going to throw another Amber on it or, you know, Mm -hmm. but certain cards where you look and they just go like, why does double doom not have a pip on it? That seems like a gimme or something else to that effect. So certainly a a thing that's changed, I think, over the course of the game. The other weird feel bad is the card that you can't play without screwing yourself over somehow, but that has a pip of amber. Um, Yeah, I know you're talking about it. But, you know, let's say um, you're the only one with creatures on the board and you want to play stomp to get that pip of amber. Or worse, you know, exile or something to that effect. Those can be those Mm -hmm. can be real pains. Exile is a big one, I find. Mm -hmm. Especially now that we don't have a uh, a game a meta in Mass Mutation that has quite the capture game that we had back in uh, uh, Worlds Collide. Yeah. So definitely something to consider, uh, I think, but uh, cer- certainly a problem that has become more pronounced as the game has evolved. What about Amber Control versus Generation, Blake? Yeah, so I think that's always interesting because that 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 for me falls into the category of the ratio of how much ember can your deck generate versus how well it can control the game uh your opponent's ember and the reason being is because it lets you know the way you're going to have to race potentially because and and this is one that's really become prevalent from aoa because you sometimes get these decks that have like almost no ember control so it's like okay how fast can i generate ember so i don't have to worry about taking my opponent off a key and and that's where i think that ratio is important because you have to understand if you're not going to be able to stop your opponent from forging, you're going to need to be able to forge faster. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And that's kind of a thing where, you know, the, the the magic ratio is not something that's going to be consistent across decks at all, right? You know, there are mm-hmm. so many different ways to generate amber from reaping to playing cards that have pips on them from stealing. Stealing is a form of amber generation. It's just, you know, it's mm-hmm. also a form of amber control at the same time. So it's one that you really do have to look at from the perspective of, you know, uh, uh, the individual deck and oftentimes the individual matchup. Yeah, it's true. Um, Why don't we, since we're also on the topic of Amber Generation, talk a little bit about Creature Count versus Amber Generation. This is an interesting one to me because I think we've seen the value of creatures go up and down across the various sets. In the first set, Mm -hmm. there were some creatures that were extremely valuable and a lot of creatures where it was like, I would rather have almost any action than this creature. Then in AOA, it was suddenly all about creatures, lots of big value because actions had been depowered to a degree. Then, you know, up, down, up, down, up, down, and like that into the present set, Mass Mutation. Where do you think we're at with Creature Count versus Amber Generation, Blake? 
Well, with the introduction of pips and whatnot, it has changed the the scenario quite a bit. I definitely think that Worlds Collide was the upper echelon of if you had a high creature count, you most likely had some really cool ways of generating ember with those creatures. Uh, Dinos definitely took advantage of of that stat. And I think you could also make the argument that Star Alliance did as well just because of the things you could do um, with different things. But uh, I think creature count versus generation, what you're thinking there is are you going to need to use your creatures to generate ember? Like that, that is, that is the, how this works is, is, is your ember generation is the number of ways you can generate ember within your deck. And that's going to obviously be pips versus other cards that generate ember from playing it. Or is it going to come from, you need to utilize your board to get to those keys. That's really what this stat is talking about. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a, it's an interesting one to consider. I think in, in a lot of ways, just because, you know, the, the, the traditionally, um, you know, I, I don't ever look at creatures for their reaping potential. Like even creatures that have good reap abilities that get you bonus amber, like say, for example, cards that allow when they reap to steal or cards that get you a bonus mm-hmm. amber when you reap, um, you know, uh, going all the way back to Coda, those have been things. But when I look at creatures, I almost never see them in terms of what is the potential that I will get out of reaping with this creature? I always look, always look at it from its uh, uh, perspective of what is this going to do for me in terms of its play reap or fight ability rather than its Amber generation. And I find it very difficult Mm -hmm. to visualize what I'm likely to get out of creatures when it comes to Amber generation. Do you have that problem or have you got sort of like a rubric in your head for figuring that out? I need to mull that one over. It's a, it's a, it's, it's something I think I might do subconsciously. Now that you've said it, I'm, I'm trying to think about it. But I will say that a creature's ability is going to create the, the inclination to want to use that ability. So you're getting that that ember generation as a byproduct of wanting to use the ability that it creates through the reap. I think mm-hmm. I would agree with that. Um, somebody must have figured out a formula for this at some point. Like, mm-hmm. you know, break it down by averages. You know, if you're three houses, the average length of a game, the average number of times you're likely to call an individual house and the number of creatures in that house. And then, you know, the 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 ability of that creature to stick around. There must be some kind of formula that you could plug all that into and then sort of look at it from a potential. I'd be shocked, actually, if DOK doesn't do that to a certain degree. But with that mm-hmm. said, let's talk a little bit about creature distribution versus creature count, which is an interesting topic because it goes back into our where are our creatures located within our deck? Which houses are they centered in? Yeah, and I think that's important because especially this this is a great follow-up to Ember Generation because if you're going to need to use your creatures to generate Ember, the absolute worst thing you can have is a very even distribution between all three houses if you don't have a super high creature uh, count to begin with. So I think it's when you get around the 16, 17 mark that this becomes a little bit more like you don't want a really even like 666 type of thing going on in between. You you want a little bit more. Like it's nice to have one house that has like eight creatures or seven creatures like that because then you can establish that board and reap out with it and have like a really strong presence. I've I mean, I've had games we're going against like I didn't have board clears and then my opponent put six creatures down and and they're elusive like that is that is a nightmare because if they can stop you from establishing a board and it's going to cause two creatures to be able to kill one of theirs it can put you in a really sticky situation and that's where the ability to just vomit a key's worth of ember generation from your board is going to be a really powerful thing to just basically be like well I'm just going to keep calling this house until you stop me from doing this and I think that is why 
being able to generate ember from one house's worth of creatures is a really special thing that can be very powerful. Yeah, I mean, you know, there there are lots of great decks that I've played that specifically, I mean, the, the Spartasaur decks were terrific for this, you know, sort of the thing of just, I'm going to annihilate my opponent's board turn over turn and then reap out with all of my creatures. Um, there's lots mm-hmm. of little ways that you could achieve that. Or at the very least, you know, your opponent, if they have a low creature count in one house, all of us, you know, just like you said, so all of a sudden, you know, all right, I get to put down one creature from shadows while my opponent has six dinos across. Okay, they're going to fight into my shadows creature and kill it with one dino and then reap out with the rest of them and they're at a key. What am I supposed to do about that? You know, it's a potent, potent query and certainly one that I think uh, really does lead towards the, uh, the 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 nature and the need for board clears in the game of Keyforge, the fact that you simply cannot leave home without them at this point. It's true. Especially now that we're in a board-based game, and I feel like we have been in one and since basically worlds collide. Um, since AOA, actually, now that if you want to put it in those terms, um, the moment that we hit AOA is when boards suddenly became really important and they've, you know, they've changed in the way that they've been important. But it's been a board-based game for three sets now, and I don't see that changing. Yeah, and I definitely think that when AOA established it, there wasn't the need to play AOA. You could get around it with other things but now that there's three sets worth of decks to pull from it's making it a little bit more uh, tricky to ignore that Mm -hmm. fact and it's such a it's such a primal thing within keyforge it's not like okay i can get away without artifact control in my deck you can get away without artifact control because chances are that most decks you're going to go up against aren't going to be the like that's not going to be the total linchpin for them with a couple of obvious notable exceptions, heart of the forest, Quixel stone, maybe dab yeah. in certain very like good dab deck cases. But you know, mm-hmm. it, it's literally a case now where the game is so geared towards that board that I think that it's a very strong chance that if you don't have a board clear, and I see this in the decks that I play all the time, the ones that are weak on board control, that the matchup instantly becomes all right. If my opponent's playing a heavy board deck, I am, I'm boned. And if they know how to play that, which is, you know, a skill unto itself, but certainly not one that's hard to pick up once you get experienced with a heavy board deck. Yeah, I've I've definitely noticed that too. I, I've you really see the weakness in a deck when you're lacking that board control. Mm-hmm. Since we're talking a little bit about where creatures fall within your deck and across which houses, what about distribution of just the general stats in your deck? And we can talk about this, I guess, in terms of sort of the classic board control, amber control, amber generation, um, deck manipulation type stats. Do you like to see those centered in a single house or do you think that it's better for it to be distributed across all houses? I'll preface this by saying that way back in the day, I know one of your criteria oftentimes was, is there uh, amber control in more than one house in a deck? Because that's very appealing to me as somebody who's playing the game. Do you think that's still as important? Yeah, I think you want, I mean, you can obviously, we can go to the BDQ, you know, main house, support house sort of idea with this, with this concept. But I, I think you want to have some in some way in every house because of things like Restaurant Guntis control the week. So if you can't call a house, you want to be able to deal with things with your other houses. Let's say, let's say for example, all of your board control, mm-hmm. like there's none anywhere else falls under uh, a house that, that you're told you cannot call because of Restaurant Guntis. Then guess what? You are hosed because you're going to have to figure a way to fight into Restaurant Guntis. And if it's taunted and you don't have no cards that you can call that are just going to be able to do direct damage in that way, you're a little hosed. So I think being able to call any house when you're digging and get to it is really helpful for this. It's obviously not a necessity, 
but I think you do want to have it in pretty much a little bit of everything in every house. Obviously, I'm talking about board control and ember control are the ones you want. I think the other ones is fine if it's in other areas because we know that disruption falls mainly under dis. And if you're going to do the uh, efficiency stat in cycling and whatnot falls mainly under logos, that means that I just think the board control and ember control does need to have, uh, you would ideally like a little bit in every house. Now you may have one house that's going to be stronger than the others. And that's where understanding your ratio makes sense. Like, okay, I know if I call shadows more often than not, I'm obviously going to be able to do more ember control, which I feel like is a pretty shadowsy thing. Mm -hmm. I would agree with you a hundred percent on that uh, similar sort of topic. Can we talk a little bit about key cheats versus just the ability to forge? Yeah, so um, yeah, th- what I mean by this is the, ab- the ability to forge using a key cheat. Mm-hmm. So for example, if you have a key charge and you don't have a way of generating a lot of ember in that house, so obviously the classic key cheat that we're, everyone knows, like you already know what, when I say key cheat, we're all thinking the same thing. It's key mm-hmm. charge, right? That's what everyone thinks about when you think of key cheat. It's the original way, and that's when you had full moons and you had hunting witches. The ability to key charge was so easy, and it's progressed in uh to worlds collide where in worlds collide it wasn't as easy to do that because you didn't have those uh ember generating creature cards in the same way Mm -hmm. and you could be stuck where you're like okay i'm holding this key uh, key charge because i want to be able to key cheat right now and i'm going to need creatures on the board to reap with and then pull it off next Mm -hmm. turn and then you have the same thing with like obsidian forge where you need to establish a board to really use obsidian forge then you have, of course, the Imperial Forge where you need to have a ton of Ember. And all these things are creating this moment where you need something to stick before you can move forward with it. And it wasn't the case at the beginning when you had the classic Coda, Key Charge, Choda, Key Cheats. Yeah, at the same time, too, we've also seen the rise of Key Cost be such a factor in Key Forge mm-hmm. over the last you know, set. And so suddenly, you know, all right, well, it's not enough for me to have a key cheat and even have enough Amber to forge at regular. Now I have to have enough Amber to forge minus one for whatever my, key, or, you know, uh, I, I get plus one, plus one, you know, it's such a, a, a huge thing to have to be concerned about. Key cheats are basically dead in the water as of mass mutation. I'll be interested to see if they come back, but it's not even a thing I think about at this point if I'm opening up a mass mutation deck. Like they're just, they're thin on the ground and they're too difficult to pull off. Yeah, I would agree. And they've, uh, the, the, the mechanics of the set make them even harder to pull off on older decks as well. Um, with the exception of the super burst coda decks, which could, you know, generate 16 Amber in a single turn. Um, and you know, if those have a key cheat, you know, you're, you're, you're laughing, but, uh, you know, as always, all of the stuff in evolution, I like talking about topics like this because oftentimes, even though, as I said, off the top of the show, there's so much variability in them that no advice can be universal. It really gets me thinking when I talk to you about how I assess an individual deck. All right. So, you know, there may be no common wisdom that's universally applicable, but what you've said makes me think about this particular deck from an analytical standpoint as I'm figuring out how to, you know, play that deck or thinking about theoretically how that deck might be played or even one of my favorite games, the what if I could theorize a deck based on certain cards and then see if one exists on DOK. Yeah. That's a fun one. That is a super fun one. Can't end an episode of Help from Future Self without the titular segment. Help Help from Future Self. self. Blake, do you have one for us this week? I do. And this comes from me trying to play every deck that I own. And while I'm working my way through slowly but surely, 
It is a uh, very fun process, but I'm, I'm coming to these moments where I'm like conceding games like like I notice I'm losing and I'm not even seeing it out. Uh, I just see that it's not it's not winning and it's and this is the important part is it's not fun playing. Mm-hmm. And that's what I, what I want to talk about when you're testing new decks and stuff like that. There's a very difference between losing because things aren't going your way and games being like just not being fun and i've had it where like i'm staying in the game and i can see the inevitable outcome but the way the deck is playing to stay in the game i'm just like wow like i don't enjoy this style of play like this isn't for me and that's okay like there's nothing wrong with stopping playing a deck that you're trying to discover because you recognize like this doesn't jive with me like i don't like the style of play that this deck does i don't like the way it goes about generating ember ember control any of the stats that we've discussed today I don't like the way the creatures are like this style of creature is not my jam. Like that's fine. Mm -hmm. Like identify that. And you can, you can concede if you're losing handedly, like there's nothing wrong with that. Don't feel an obligation to see out a game, especially if you're trying to test something to see how it functions in playing every deck. This is the best lesson I've learned is if I'm not enjoying playing it, it is literally irrelevant what that deck does period full stop. That's how I feel now. If I don't enjoy playing it in any capacity, I don't need to know anything else about that deck. That's an interesting one of, I think, as a lesson to learn, if only because I think so often, you know, I remember going back and listening to episodes of, uh, you know, podcasts, strategy podcasts and things where there's like, oh, it doesn't matter if, you know, you play out even an entire game with a deck, you know, just so long as you can see what it does. That's the important part. And I think that we sort of segregate testing and fun into different buckets but ultimately the goal for playing keyforge is always to have fun especially right now when we're in that stage of you know there's no organized play there's no real competition going on that necessitates sort of that intense focus on you know i must ferret out every secret from a deck that i'm considering playing you know it it has to stay fun in order for you to want to do it Agreed. Yeah. You can find us on Twitter at HFFS podcast. I am on Twitter at Scuzzy Gruen. You can also find me on the crucible and on Instagram under that handle. What have you got going on, Blake? Oh, you can uh, catch me streaming. I'm in fact going to do a stream tonight, a little decision to uh, add a second one this week. So tonight being Thursday, you can catch me at uh, six o'clock doing a little stream for a little bit, testing out some other decks And of course, you can uh, find me on my YouTube uh, Boulevard Paper Fight for all the latest content I'm putting out. Excellent. I'm going to go chug some NyQuil (laughs) and eat some soup and uh, see if I can get myself in better shape for next week's episode. Thank you so much for listening. Blake, thank you so much for doing the heavy lifting on this one. Uh, I still think uh, this was a really fun episode and I really enjoyed this series. Uh, Coming up next week one of the many topics that we have in reserve for just such an occasion. Until then, stay focused.